Grab a seat, church. Hey, how we doing? We doing good? Good. Hey, uh, regardless of me making fun of Kyle, he's one of my good friends. And so just know that everything I say is 100% true. Okay, so... <laughs> he hung his head in shame as he walked off stage. Um, anyway, we are, uh, we're in the midst of a series right now uh, called Everybody Always. And it's based off a book by a guy, uh, or uh, based off a book by an author by the name of Bob Goff. Um, he is a, uh, he's a New York Times bestseller. His first book is called Love Does. It's his more famous book. Um, and that landed on the New York Times bestselling list. And this follow-up book, Everybody Always has as well. And so uh, we're in week three of four of this series. And so next week, we're going to kind of wrap it up before we launch into something else. And we'll talk to you about that next time. Um, but, uh, but, but really, this book has a very simple premise to it with incredibly difficult repercussions. The premise is simple, but the repercussions of it are incredibly difficult. See, I grew up in church. I grew up in a church, and so for me, all of this was common knowledge. The idea of loving everybody always was common knowledge. There were, there were things I was supposed to do, and there were things that I was not supposed to do, right? For those of you who grew up in church, you, you knew very well what those things that, that you were supposed to do were and the things you weren't supposed to do were, right? And oftentimes you were reminded in sometimes not so subtle ways by your parents what it was you were not supposed to do, okay? And that's true, that's true for a lot of us who, who showed up to church. I, I grew up and so I, I knew those things. I knew these things, but, but it wasn't really until I got into high school that uh, my faith started to turn and it started to become my own. Right? I grew up with, with parents who went to church, were there most Sundays. It was, it was a shock when we woke up, when I woke up and we, we didn't go to church and we had donuts on the counter instead. I was like, best Sunday ever. Um, um, but, but when I got into high school, that all changed. All that transition because, because I met a group of people when I was in high school that really did help shape and, and transform who I was and my understanding of Christ. And, and when we were about juniors in high school, me and a couple of buddies of mine decided we were going to start doing a, a Bible study before school. It was after our water polo practice and it was, it was before school and it was in one of our buddies' dad's classrooms. And so... Um, man, we thought we were just being super holy, right? We were coming with our Bibles and it was like the adventure Bible from when we were like in fourth grade and we're juniors in high school. We're like, check out this picture of Samson, right? All those things. Um, but oftentimes what it turned into was really just us doing our best to plan whatever shenanigans we were going to pull later on, right? As typical junior guys did. And so like we would bring our Bibles and we'd set them down and we'd start just chatting about life. And of course, girls, because we were juniors in high school. But I remember one day in particular, we decided that it was a, uh, going to be a great idea. My friend uh, brought stink bombs to school, right? And so he thought it'd be a great idea for us to ditch our Bible study that Thursday morning and figure out how we were going to, to set off two stink bombs in our water polo coach's classroom, right? Because that's what you do in high school, apparently. Um, now, for those of you who don't know me well or don't know my upbringing very well, um, I was always the lookout, right? Any lookout people in here? Okay, They called me the voice of reason. Okay, that was my nickname. Uh, my two other friends were like fire, or, 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 uh, yeah, fire and gasoline. Those two got together and things just exploded, sometimes literally. Um, 
And so I was always like the driver, the lookout, what, you know, whatever it was. I wanted to be like part of the guys, but like not that much part of the guys. I'm terrified of getting in trouble. Um, anyway, I ended up not getting caught and, and they were both incredibly angry at me for that. But, but regardless of that ridiculous story at that time in my life, we decided that it was important for us to pursue God and pursue community. And so even though sometimes we did ridiculous things like set off smoke bombs or, or, or stink bombs in, in classes and stuff like that, it's when our faith really started to become our own. Because we got together and we started figuring out what this whole thing looks like, what Christianity looks like apart from mom and dad. Apart from anybody else, apart from older people or younger people or whatever, it was us, people who are in the same kind of age group. And we were going to dig into scripture and figure out what it looked like. At some point in high school, it switched from being what my parents believed to what it is that I believed. But, but some of us in here didn't, didn't grow up in the church and so some of this may, may be strange, but, but even for those of us who did grow up in the church, there was a point in our lives where our faith transitioned from being something of our parents to something of our own. Regardless of when you came to faith, there are a number of reasons that, that people ultimately do seek out religious institutions in some way, shape, or form. We hope it's because we have presented the truth in such a way that people can't argue with logic, and the truth is indeed that scripture. But, but there are some other things that we can look at and recognize as reasons that people seek out religious institutions in general. Right? The first one really is that we want to be part of something greater than ourselves. We want to be part of something greater than ourselves. And that's absolutely true. It's the entire reason that people get behind a leader of some sort. It's because they see good in that person or that entity or that organization. And, and because of that, they want to see a cause move forward because they believe in the power of that cause. They want to see things move forward. They want to know that they are a part of something bigger than they could accomplish on their own. It's the same reason that when we watch Star Wars at my house, my kids want to be Jedis. Right? Because afterwards, I mean, they, they, they're using the force on each other. And I'm just like, what do you do? Like, you're not even touching it. How, are, how is that actually affecting you right now? But they want to be a part of something bigger than they actually are. And so they're like, man, I'm going to defeat Darth Vader. And I can't do it without the rebel cause at my back. Like, I can't do any of this without. It's the same reason for us. We want to be a part of something that is bigger than ourselves. We understand as humans, we understand our limits, the limits of our abilities. And because of that, we naturally want to, want to glom on to something that is bigger and further reaching. We want to be part of something big. We love saying that we are on the ground floor of revolution. I mean, that's America 101, right? Like, man, we, I'm, I'm going to be a part of something bigger than I am. And there's this group of people that established our country back in the 1700s. And because of the fact that, that it was the collective movement of people, we have America today, right? That's like part of our DNA as Americans, uh, being part of a cause, something bigger than we are. We want to be a part of something that bears the name, the hope of the world, ultimately. And that's, that's why a lot of people seek out religious institution. That's exciting and that's fun. And we want to be a part of that revolution. But ultimately that will fall short unless it's rooted in truth. Which is your next blank. We want to be a part of something that is true. We want to be a part of something that is true. If we grab onto a movement, 
simply because it's moving and it's not rooted in truth, then ultimately it's going to fizzle out. Ultimately, it's going to fizzle out. A great example of this is a show. It was on when I was in high school. Uh, give me a hand raise. You guys remember that show, Deal or No Deal? Deal or No Deal? Yeah, right? You're like, oh, yeah, it's a great show. They tried to make, make a comeback with it, and I think it flops. No one watched it or anything like that. But it was a massive deal, right? It was like, who wants to be a millionaire? Like, couple your gap in the excitement. And then all of a sudden, Deal or No Deal came on. And ultimately, Deal or No Deal fizzled, right? Like, it was like, oh, this is awesome. And then it completely and totally fizzled out. You guys know why it fizzled out? It fizzled out because people started catching on to the idea that all you have to do to be as successful at that show is pick a number. That's it. Everything else was rooted in suspense. Like that was all it is, right? You guys remember uh, uh, Howie, I forget his last name, but, but the bald guy, right? So not any of you, okay? But uh, he hosted the show and he said, open that case right after this. And everybody would be like, oh, that's the worst thing ever. And ultimately people were like, all right, forget it. I'm done with the show. Like, I don't care if they win $5 or or a million dollars. But that show fizzled because there was no substance to it. It was all just based on emotion and feeding on people's emotion. And ultimately people got wise to that idea. And they're like, forget about it. You don't have to, there is nothing special about anybody on this show. All they're doing is completely and totally praying on emotion. And so because of that, Man, we want to, not, not because of the show, but we want to be a part of something that is rooted in truth. People seek out religious organizations because they want to be rooted in truth. And organized religion is, is a lot of times that same way. We as followers of Christ want something that is true. And ultimately, that used to be enough. For those of you who are about 55 and older, that used to be enough. Maybe 50 and older. Is that, hey, if it's true, I'm in. But what we have seen is we've seen an attack on truth lately. From about the time that I was in high school forward, we've seen an attack on truth. And that there is no such thing as absolute truth. And so because of that, even because of that question, you don't even have to agree with the fact that that there is absolute truth or not. Because that question has been raised, people people my age and younger are not just asking if something is true. They want to know if something works. And that's your next fill in the blank is they want to know if something works. We want to be a part of something that works. And so for those of you who are in the older generation, that's a hundred percent fine. You're like, it's true. I'm good with that. But there is a new question being asked, not just if it's true, but does it work? Show me evidence of it working. Now I don't, I, I, I don't, get political from the stage and I'm going to keep it tame here, but we're going to, we're going to dive into some muddy water for a second. Okay. Promise it. You, you guys are like, I'm not going to promise you anything. We're going to dive into muddy water for a second. Okay. Um, a lot of people are confused about the fact why, why many people in my age group and younger are so attracted to the idea of socialism, right? It's like, why would you ever, I know slow rumble across the crowd. I don't know. We're going there right now. I'm not endorsing anything, okay? <laughs> but, but there's confusion. Like, why would you ever? Why would you ever even consider the idea of socialism? Look at the facts, right? Look at different, different countries that have been completely and totally decimated by this idea of socialism and that sort of thing. You can't, I mean, you can't even turn on news without, without some pundit talking about socialism, Without talking about people who want this to be a socialist nation. I mean, Bernie Sanders almost became the Democratic nominee running on a socialist ticket, right? Democratic socialist, but still, we all know what that means. 
on a socialist ticket. And, and it's confusing. We're like, why would, why would we even do that? Why are young people pushing toward that? And I truly believe that young people in America believe in socialism because they have been a part of a capitalist society for their entire lives and they're seeing a broken world. And as they see this capitalist society, they see a broken world. They want to figure out if something else will work. It's not because they're thumbing their nose at, at old, you know, old ways or, or anything like that. They want to see the world change. They want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And as they are a part of something bigger than themselves, they want to see something work. And they're seeing a broken world in the midst of that. Now, regardless of how you feel about socialism or Bernie Sanders or anything like that, we need to recognize that people ultimately do want to be part of something that's greater than themselves, something that is rooted in truth and something that will indeed work. Young people want to see if something else works. And in the religious realm, young people today want to know that church isn't just about lip service on a Sunday. That it isn't just about people like you and I coming to church to fill up our own cups and then walk away the rest of the week unencumbered regarding our responsibility to love people well. They want to see people's lives changed. They want to see people who are putting their money where their mouth is regarding their beliefs to stand up for what is true, to actually preach what it is they say they believe. And the problem with this is uh, that there is a, a massive risk ultimately that is involved on our parts in order to do so. And that risk is something that we, that we as Christians have a hard time overcoming. Oftentimes, and, and, and it's why people don't ultimately share the gospel with other people. Today, we get, to, we get to look at the idea that in order to love everybody always, we have to be okay with risk. And that's very difficult for a lot of us. It's something that I deal with every single day. It's something you should deal with every single day, whether or not I want to come off as this overly dramatic uh, a zealot proclaiming my faith in Christ to others. Man, you know how many conversations get shut down immediately following them asking me what I do for a living? It's ridiculous, right? Now, it used to be when I was a youth pastor, it used to be like I would be buying like 50 gallons of something for a game. And they'd be like, what are you doing? I was like, oh, it's for work. I would say it's for work. That was my cop-out. And the follow-up question was, what do you do for work? Uh, I'm a youth pastor, and we're going to go throw this ice cream at each other later on. <laughs> what? <laughs> right? But now it's moved on to just like basic regular conversation, right? And they're like, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I'm a pastor. And then like their expression changes, like their posture gets better. Like they remember their mom slapping the back of their head when they were asleep in church when they were younger and that sort of thing. Like I gotta be on my best behavior right now. Like we have to deal, we, we deal with that risk on a regular basis of coming off as a certain way that we don't want to come off. Man, I don't ever want to come off as somebody who is, who is high and mighty, somebody who's gonna judge other people, someone, but, but there is so much baggage attached to my job, there's so much baggage attached, attached to church, the church in the, in the 21st century that as soon as I say that, man, it shuts people down. Now, for, for some of you, some of you other people, it, I mean, risk can be different. For some of you at work, like if you talk about Jesus, you're getting fired. You're not allowed to do that. Or for some of you, you're dealing with, with family uh, relationships that, man, if I talk about Jesus in this instance, they're going to shut down completely. And that relationship is going to go away. 
But the reason it is hard for us to overcome this risk is because our natural state seeks familiarity. Our natural state seeks familiarity. We love our natural state. We love what's familiar to us, right? And I'm going to get to scripture in just a second. I know some of you are squirming and that sort of thing. I'm going to get there. But we love what's familiar to us. We don't like change. We don't like that the chairs are arranged in a different way because your seats got jacked up. When you go to a restaurant, pick your favorite restaurant, right? Think about your favorite restaurant in your head right now. First of all, if you don't get, if you don't sit on the right side of the restaurant, you're uh, you're a little upset, okay? And then beyond that, you order the same thing every single time you go to that restaurant, right? You could think about it right now. Some of you, I see you nudging your spouse, saying, "Yeah, you do get you do get the the fancy burrito from Sal's every single time." You're right. Or me, when I'm, when I'm at home, we don't have cable, and, but we have Netflix, right? And so when, when I want to watch a show, I just scroll through Netflix trying to find something else. And then ultimately I land straight back on The Office every single night because I love The Office. And I'm like, ah, all right, forget it. I'm going back to The Office. And we just love familiarity. And that is our, our natural state. And to get more serious with it, we love familiarity so much that we're still dealing with the same sins that we've been dealing with for years because we're comfortable in it. We know how it works. Our natural state after the fall of man, after sin entered the world back in Genesis chapter three is sin. And it's going to be that way until we die or until Jesus comes back. That is going to be our natural state. Ephesians two, one to three, it says, as for you, You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at that one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest. We were by nature deserving of wrath by nature, our natural state deserving of wrath. Our natural state, our state by nature is the familiarity of our fallen state. We are familiar with it. Our natural state is our sinful nature. That's who we are from the moment we come out of our mamas. We are fallen and broken creatures, desperate in need of salvation. It's our very nature that seeks familiarity and comfort. It's it's a sinful nature. And it's because of that that our commanded state demands risk. And that's your next blank. Our commanded state demands risk. Well, well, what's our commanded state then? It's the same thing that we've been talking about. We're going to Matthew 22. We're going to Mark. We're going to go to Matthew 28. Or Matthew 28, excuse me. 19 to 20. It tells us what we're commanded to do. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And this is a command. And you think this was easy for the disciples? Man, we, we read scripture and we think about the apostles. We're like, man, those guys were superheroes back then. They changed the world. Without those guys, man, how, are we, how, how would we even have this? How would we have the Bible? How would we have God's word? Man, those guys were incredible. Man, the average IQ of those guys was like that of my fourth grader. This wasn't a smart group of people. This, for the most part, wasn't a trained group of people. They were people who were simply okay with establishing risk in their lives on a regular basis. It was not easy for them. And Jesus' Jesus' 12 disciples called him rabbi. 
right? Rabbi means, means teacher. And with so many fishermen among them, you know, Jesus enjoyed sharing fish stories with them. Jesus would listen as they argued about who would face the roughest storms in their life, I'm sure. He realized that those who chose to follow him would, would face dangers, they would face difficulties, far greater than any single storm that they had at sea. Jesus used at one point a, a furious storm to test their faith. And as the waves swept over their boat, Jesus just peacefully just slept. And suddenly the disciples' faith wavered, right? They questioned that Jesus still cared about their safety. I mean, how often, like, like the disciples, do we panic and wonder if God cares about us? Like, God, where are you in the midst of all of this? And by remaining faithful, the disciple learned that, that great storms of doubt and fear in the soul often end in, in this wonderful calm and peace and understanding of what God was actually doing in the midst of that storm. We can triumph in God and in his presence with us, especially when we realize that God manifests his power for our benefit. But man, the disciples, they were, they were so convinced about their commanded state. They were so convinced about that state that the majority of them were killed for their beliefs and they stood firm in the midst of trial. You want to talk to somebody who is, who is not sure about the truth of scripture, who's not sure about the truth of Bible, man, talk to them about the early church. Stop, stop arguing from a point of biblical authority and start arguing from a point of tra- change lives. Right? You, want to, you want to talk to young people like that? Start arguing from a point of the fact that, man, we have, we have a group of, of 11 men, ultimately 12 men, who were living one way and then completely and totally did a 180 and started walking in a different direction. And we know this isn't a farce because, because we, have, we have details about their deaths that aren't recorded in Scripture. They're recorded from other historical accounts. And so, so let me remind you, how the disciples died. Because remember, these are a bunch of guys, simple guys, fishermen, guys who were comfortable uh, with, with, with being devout Jews. Like they were good with that. And then Jesus comes onto the scene and he completely and totally disrupts their lives. And so let me, let me just remind you, Peter and Paul, right? Peter and Paul, both of them were martyred in Rome about the same time, about 66 AD, during the persecution under Emperor Nero. Okay, they, they, they both died. Paul was beheaded. Paul, who we've talked a lot about in 2018, but, but Paul, the guy who was, was Pharisee among Pharisees, if there was a guy who was doing Jewish, uh, uh, being, being the, uh, the best Jew that could possibly be, it was him. He was beheaded for his faith. Okay? Then we have Peter was crucified, but Peter was crucified upside down upon his own request because he felt like uh, he, wasn't, he, he shouldn't be crucified in the same way that Jesus was. So he's like, no, flip me upside down and kill me. We have Andrew. Andrew went to what's called the land of the man eaters is what they called it. Okay. And, uh, it's now, it, it would have been, uh, uh, Russia. Okay. Around Russia. Christians there claim him as, uh, as the first to bring the gospel to their land. He also preached in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey and in Greece. And ultimately he was crucified in Greece. Thomas was probably the most active in Syria. Tradition has him preaching as far east as India and a lot of places. They claim that he died there when he was pierced through with the spears of four, four soldiers because of his faith. 
We'll keep going. Philip possibly had a powerful ministry in Carthage in North Africa. And then after that, Asia Minor, where he converted the wife of a Roman pre-council. You want to put a target on your head, do that. In, uh, in retaliation, the pre-council had, had Philip arrested and cruelly put to death. Matthew, the tax collector and writer of the gospel, ministered in Persia and Ethiopia. And then after that, um, he, uh, some of the oldest reports say he wasn't martyred, while others say he was stabbed to death, death in Ethiopia. What about Bartholomew? Hey, Bartholomew, widespread missionary travels attributed him by tradition to India with Thomas, right? And then back to Armenia and also to Ethiopia and Southern Arabia. They're traveling all over the world at this point. There are various accounts of how he met his death, but everyone does agree that he was indeed martyred. James, son of Alphaeus, he's, he's known as James the Lesser. He's the least of the three James. Uh, he's referred to in the New Testament that way. There's some confusion as to who was who, but this James ministered in Syria. Jewish historian Josephus reported that he was stoned and then clubbed to death for his faith. Simon the Zealot ministered in Persia, was killed after refusing to, sacrifice, to make a sacrifice to the sun god. Matthias was the apostle chosen to replace Judas. Tradition sends him to Syria with Andrew and to death by burning. John is the only one of the entire company generally thought to have died a natural death from old age. And most of you probably know this. He was the leader of the church in Ephesus and is said to have taken care of Mary, the mother of Jesus, in his home. During persecution in the mid-90s, not the 1990s, the actual just 90s, he was, exiled to the, he was exiled to the island of Patmos, where he's credited with writing the last book of the New Testament, book of Revelation. And an early Latin tradition has him escaping unhurt after being cast into boiling oil at Rome. These guys were completely and totally ordinary men. They had families. A lot of times they think of these guys just as like bachelors who had nothing else to do, right? We know Peter, at the very least, had a wife, right? Because he had a mother-in-law. It talks about that in Scripture. These were guys who had, who had lives of their own, had families of their own, were established in routine of their own, jobs of their own, well-being. And man, Jesus walked along and said, hey, follow me. And they're like, okay, we're going to go. We're going to risk everything that we know is good. Everything that we know is safe, rather. That's what it is that we're going to risk. And so you want to talk about how to, how to change people's minds about Jesus? Start talking about the people whose lives were changed because of Jesus. Man, start having conversations about Paul. Start having conversations about Peter, who was a dumb fisherman. And Jesus ultimately said, hey, I'm going to build my church on your back. Don't screw it up. Man, start having conversations about changed lives because these guys recognize the inherent risk of their changed lives. And they said yes, regardless. Because they recognized that following Jesus was a whole lot better than their own personal comfort. And it started by them simply saying yes. Matthew four eighteen to 22. It says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them and immediately, 
Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. They embraced their call. They embraced their responsibility and refused to ignore their commanded state. They had a commanded state. We have a commanded state. All of them except one had transformed lives. And the one whose life wasn't transformed, no one names their kid after, right? You never hear about any little Judas running around or anything like that. And if your son's name is Judas, I'm sorry. To your son, not to you. Okay. Um, But they knew about their commanded state. And they knew that if they ignored their command and state, others would suffer. And we need to understand that in the same way, when we ignore our commanded state, others suffer. When we ignore our commanded state, others suffer. So again, what is our commanded state? Let me, let me read it again from another gospel for you. Mark chapter 12, verses 30 to 31. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And that term, that, that term commanded state, it sounds so heavy-handed, right? It sounds so, so heavy. But that state of being saved... And doing our best to walk with God, doing our best to become holy should naturally flow from us. This isn't a guilt-induced state. This is a reminder to us that as we are filled up, we need to be pouring out. It's not just about us personally being filled up. We have to love God most so we can love others best. That's a John Piper quote. And when we, when we become our, like our own supreme love instead of God, when love becomes distorted, when love becomes diseased, when we start defining what love is and what love looks like, what we wish for it to mean, this is, this is a great evil. It's greater than, than oftentimes we realize. This is the world as we know it. Everyone loves in the way that is right in their own eyes. Everyone loves in their own way, which of course means that everyone hates in the way that is right in their own eyes. They become supreme lovers of self, as 2 Timothy tells us, and live in the passions of their flesh, carrying out the desires of their body and mind. Since they were children of wrath, Ephesians 2 tells us that. It's not hard to understand why there is so much confusion and conflict and heartbreak and violence in the world. We live in an anarchy of love resulting in much of the horrifying things that we hear in the news because we don't understand where love comes from. Everyone is trying to love people in the way they think is best rather than returning to the one who created love in the first place and seeing what it is true love actually looks like. And when we do that, we embrace our commanded state. And when we embrace our commanded state, everyone wins. When we embrace our commanded state, everyone wins. When we decide that it's important enough to us to share the gospel of Jesus with those who are already in our worlds, everyone wins. We do what Christ has called us to do by loving people well. And other people get the opportunity to come into the kingdom of God. But how is it then that that, that we embrace that commanded state? You listen to the promptings of the Spirit, and you're ready to share the good news of Christ when the opportunity presents itself. That's how. You listen to the Spirit, 
and you take the opportunity. We have these. They're called your Oikos card. I hope you guys have them in your Bibles, maybe. But if you don't have an Oikos card, we got some out at our guest services table. They'll be happy to give some to you immediately following service. Uh, But on this Oikos card, really, it's an opportunity for you to look at and think about the people that are already in your life who don't yet know Jesus. And there's a couple different sections for you to be able to fill out. There's one on here that says pre-Christians, right? Those are people who just don't know Jesus yet. Okay, we're, we're going to be optimistic about it. Okay, we're going to say, no, you know what? God has this in his hand. They're going to be pre-Christians. Also, I needed another P because the rest started with P, so we went with pre-Christians. The next group is prodigals. These are people, believers who are not actively pursuing their faith. These are probably people who may be in your family, your kids, your grandkids, your brother, your sister, whoever it may be. Those are, those are people there who have walked away from their faith, who at one point said, yes, I am a Christian, and now are living completely and totally opposite of that. The next one is purposefuls. Believers who, who actively pursue their faith. So maybe this is a, a spouse of yours. Maybe this is your kids who are actively pursuing, whoever it may be. People in your work who are pursuing their faith. They could go there too. And then potentials. Those people who seem to be showing up on your radar on a regular basis, but you don't know the state of their spiritual health. That's where they go. And I share this with you right now because if we are going to be okay assuming the risk of sharing about Jesus, we need to be prepared to do so. Scripture tells us you need to be prepared both in and out of season to give an account, right? This is part of that. This is part of you being prepared to be able to share Christ with those people who are already in your life. And so because of that, man, grab one of these, write them down, pray for them every time you open your Bible. Hopefully that's more than just Sunday morning, but pray for them on a regular basis. And when an opportunity presents itself, be okay assuming risk. Be okay going out on the limb for the sake of their eternity. Be okay caring about their eternal life more than you care about your temporary comfort. Be okay doing that. And that's part of this whole thing. But all of this is for naught if we can't get beyond the idea that what we have been called to do is risky. It's risky. Now, we live in America, so, so the risk that we encounter is going to be far less substantial than the risk that people in closed countries encounter. Right? Closed countries are countries that are not open to the gospel. And so our risk is substantially less. So recognizing that risk is a part of this whole thing is necessary, but it certainly shouldn't be debilitating. Why? Because 1 John 2.6, it tells us whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Church, read that again. Read that again. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. There's a whole lot of people in here who claim to live in him, who claim Jesus as their savior which is phenomenal. That being said, there's a second part of that. Whoever claims to live in him, what must we do? We must live as Jesus did. If we're going to talk about rocking the boat, we're going to talk about, about stepping out of familiarity. Let's just, let's just look at the life of Christ. We're going to talk about stepping out of the familiar, the guy who, the, the, the God rather, who temporarily gave up the benefits of deity, gave up the benefits of Godhood in order to save us from our own sinful nature. He stepped out of glory to become one of us. Christ, he entered into the world simply to die on our behalf. He challenged the religious norms of the day. 
He constantly was making people who thought they had it figured out angry because they didn't have it figured out. He ignored Satan's temptation. He simply came to earth, loved people in the way they needed to be loved, conquered death on our behalf and left. But he messed up the entire status quo by doing so. If we are willing to claim Jesus, we must love as he did. We simply have to love people well. One of the stories from everybody always, and, and I, I'm getting towards the end here now, so just bear with me. But one of the stories from everybody always is about, about Bob Goff, the author, being the Ugandan ambassador to America. Now, I said that right. Okay, some of you guys are like, do you mean the American ambassador to Uganda? No, I don't. And Bob is like the whitest guy you'll ever meet. He's so white, he's clear. Okay, and so he, he is the Ugandan ambassador to America. And from the book, this is what he says. He says, he says we have a witch doctor school. These guys were sacrificing children. This is in Uganda. There were death penalty cases. He said, I tried the first case in the country, but then I ran into Matthew 5 about loving your enemies. And I'm like, these guys are actually my enemy because of what they do. So I had to decide for me, do I want to be right or do I want to be Jesus? Do I want to be right or do I want to be Jesus? And there's an opportunity to be bold, but you have to be humble. So we started meeting with witch doctors. I actually met with over a thousand witch doctors so far in Uganda. I command every witch doctor to meet with me and they come and they're creepy dudes. And I asked them, what do you need? And they said, well, we don't know how to read or write. So get this. Bob Goff, he started a witch doctor school. It's really creepy. (laughs) And the only books they have in witch doctor school are the Bible and love does. Those are the only two books that they're allowed to read. And there's something beautiful that happens in some of the stories in the book of, of unlikely calls of people who used to do the most horrific things have actually changed. Like they bumped into not all of, all of his opinions, but they bumped into Jesus. They recognized that, man, it wasn't going to help them to be right. It was going to help them to show them who Jesus was. It was going to help them to love them well. That's what Bob decided he would do. And man, he has made so much progress there. And, and hear me, he holds them accountable for their actions. He's a lawyer. And so there are people who are incarcerated because of some of the things they've done. But man, he loves them well in the midst of all of those things. And for most of us in here, we're not going to run into witch doctors. We're not starting witch doctor school here. Like we're doing a sports camp, not a witch doctor school. And so the risk is different. You're not going to run into witch doctors. You're going to run into your neighbors. We're going to run into our coworkers. We're going to run into the people you have on your Oikos cards. And we simply need to love those people well. And remember that regardless of the risk you're taking, Christ and the disciples took a much greater one on our behalf. So it's our turn to return the favor. Church, what would it look like if we were known not by our principles, but by our love for others? That regardless of the risk, we just said, I'm in. I'm following Christ, and because of that, I am in. And we would be a church that definitely resembled our community a lot more than we actually do because we'd be willing to engage with those who are different than we are. That's not a slam on anybody. That's just truth. Teachers in our community maybe wouldn't feel burned out at school, but they'd be overwhelmed with the amount of support given from parents on a regular basis. 
because we simply love them well. The homeless population would be eradicated because we'd be, we'd be willing to go the extra distance to make sure they had a warm bed and a full belly. Kids who don't have the same advantages of many of us would get a chance to get a leg up. We would be about loving in the trenches, just not, not just throwing money at problems from the top down. It would be about loving well. Church, when communities see that, when communities see God's love at work, when they see something, they, man, they want to be a part of it because it's something that is bigger than themselves. It's something that is true and it is something that works. Amen? Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your son. Thank you for his life. Thank you for the risk even uh, that, that he put upon not only himself, but the disciples in order to come to earth to sacrifice familiarity, Father, and just say, I'm going to intercede on their behalf because, man, they don't know what they're doing. They're a sinful bunch. And God, we know that hasn't changed. We're still a sinful bunch, which is why, why here, Lord, uh, we, we pray the ABCs every single week for those people who don't yet know you or who want to recommit their life to you, Father, and, and with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if that's you this morning and you don't yet know who Jesus is, but you're like, man, I want to be a part of something bigger than myself. I want to be a part of, some, of, of loving people well. Man, I want to start a witch doctor school or I want to just be a part of sports camp so kids can love Jesus in the midst of kicking a ball. I just want to be a part of, of your kingdom, God. If that's you this morning, I say just pray along with me that A, that, that you would just say, Father, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. That God, I mess up all the time. Every single day I'm trying to do better, but I just can't shake it, God. Just admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, just like all of us are, God. B, that we would believe that you sent your son to die on the cross on our behalf, that he conquered death. And because of him conquering death, we can be with you in eternity forever, that we would believe that he did that and see that we would choose to follow you every single day. And God, part of choosing to follow you is, is accepting that risk, accepting that, that it is, it is not an easier life to be a Christian. It is a riskier life. It is oftentimes a harder life because, Lord, you've called us to do things that, that we feel like sometimes are outside the scope of our own ability. God, I pray in those instances that we would lean on you and recognize that it is our responsibility, that it is indeed our commanded state. And we would be okay with that and we would go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. So, Father, we're thankful for you, and we're thankful for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Hey, if you made a decision today on your Connect card before you drop it off, go ahead. There's a box there that said I made a decision today. Other than that, we'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.